You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ransom EXX threatens to release stolen proprietary data. Some looks at the C2C market, the criminal division of labor, and a splashy Carter marketing ploy. Misconfigured Salesforce communities expose organizational data. Our guest is Ron Brash from Verve International on a CISA advisory regarding GE ICS equipment. Ben Yellen on the proposed U.S. Bureau of Cyber Statistics. Huawei faces sanctions-induced headwinds. Mexico's investigation of Pegasus abuse continues, but so far without arrests or resignations. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. The Ransom EXX gang, recently active against targets in many countries, is threatening to leak sensitive information it stole during its ongoing extortion of hardware manufacturer Gigabyte, Computing Reports. The data are claimed to be proprietary, with many of them under non-disclosure agreements. The attack caused Gigabyte to shut down some of its operations last week. Bleeping Computer saw the ransom note, which said, in part, quote, we have downloaded 112 gigabytes of your files and we are ready to publish it. Many of them are under NDA. End quote. Screenshots of four documents said to be under an NDA were provided to show that the thieves had the goods they claimed. A study by the cyber intelligence shop at Insights sketches the criminal to criminal market and why it exists in the first place. Truly vertical integration is as rare in the underworld as it is in legitimate markets. No gang is likely to be able to do it all, hence the emergence of affiliate programs, initial access brokers, and so on. Insight's white paper says, quote, These underground criminal websites are key enablers for both buyers and sellers. On one hand, they enable buyers with fewer skills or resources to obtain raw materials, with which to construct criminal enterprises, including malware, other malicious tools, illicit infrastructure, and compromised data, accounts, and payment card details. 
This accessibility lowers barriers to entry into the criminal ecosystem for actors who might otherwise lack necessary skills or resources, but have the money to make investments. On the other hand, these websites enable actors with more skills and resources to monetize the fruits of their labor and convert their attacks or other malicious activities into profits. End quote. The criminal-to-criminal fora are polyglot, but the Russophone sites appear to be the leaders. Insights writes, quote, The Russian-language forums tend to have the most unique and sophisticated offerings, and often display higher standards of professionalism. English-language forums include not only North American and other native Anglophone criminals, but also non-native speakers of English from around the world, including former British colonies. Other language-specific forums serve geographically concentrated communities, such as the Romanian speakers of Romania and Moldavia, and the Portuguese speakers of Brazil, both of which are also significant hubs for cybercrime. Forums also exist in other widely spoken languages, such as Spanish and German, end quote. The initial access brokers form a thriving subsector of the criminal economy, and buying access makes economic sense to the criminal gangs who are the purchasers. The C2C marketplace also sees a range of marketing ploys. All World Cards, a relative newcomer to the carding market, the underworld market where pay card information is traded, is seeking to make a name for itself by dumping about a million stolen cards online. Bleeping Computer reports that Livorno-based security firm D3 Lab has looked at the dump and believes about half of the cards are current and valid, which is an unusually high fraction for any card or offering. And security company Cybel told Bleeping Computer that the data on offer includes credit card numbers, expiration dates, CVVs, names, countries, states, cities, addresses, zip codes for each credit card, and email addresses or phone numbers. The criminal buyers of Carter services seem to have been favorably impressed by the marketing ploy, and so all world cards will probably bear watching. To Interpol, Europol, the FBI, and other law enforcement authorities, we simply say, good hunting. Security firm Veronis has found exposed Salesforce communities accessible to the internet. The exposures are the result of misconfigurations. The data at risk includes such things as customer lists, support cases, and employee email addresses. If such a misconfiguration is detected and exploited, what would the consequences be? Veronis says, quote, at a minimum, a malicious actor could exploit this misconfiguration to perform recon for a spear phishing campaign. At worst, they could steal sensitive information about the business, its operations, clients, and partners. End quote. There's also the possibility of lateral motion from the Salesforce account into other services that the organization has integrated with their Salesforce account. The U.S. continues its efforts to persuade friendly governments to avoid Huawei-manufactured equipment. Reuters describes a recent U.S. approach to Brazil, during which the U.S. observed that Huawei's supply chain difficulties would end up with it leaving Brazil's telecommunications infrastructure high and dry. Those supply chain difficulties, of course, have been induced by worldwide concern over the security risks Huawei equipment may carry with them. 
And, of course, due to U.S. sanctions that have restricted Huawei's access to the technology it needs to develop and produce its products. China's embassy in Brazil has protested what it characterized as American smears and coercion. The state-run media outlet Global Times says the embassy put it this way, quote, We express strong discontent and vehement objection to such behaviors of publicly coercing and intervening in other countries' 5G construction and sabotaging normal China-Brazil cooperation, end quote. The Washington Post and Security Week both have overviews of how Apple's child protection initiatives have prompted a resurgence in the crypto wars. We'll have more notes on the current engagement in this afternoon's pro-policy briefing. Mexican prosecutors continue to investigate their country's corner of the NSO scandal, seeking to determine who authorized using Pegasus intercept tools against ordinary citizens and government critics. Reuters reports that so far there's no joy, they've come up with no arrests and prompted no firings. Watchdog organizations have been critical of the investigation's progress, complaining that the office conducting the probe is effectively itself implicated in the use of Pegasus. The investigators point out that it's a difficult and complicated investigation. Ricardo Sanchez Perez del Pozo head of the Special Prosecutor for Crimes Against Freedom of Expression, defending his investigative team, said they were close to bringing the first case to court. He told Reuters, quote, This is a really complex investigation. It has advanced significantly, end quote. Mexico was the first significant international Pegasus customer, spending $160 million on the intercept tool since 2011. And finally, a quick reminder that it's Patch Tuesday. Expect fixes to be issued throughout the day. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ron Brash is Director of Cybersecurity Insights at Verve Industrial Protection. I caught up with him recently for his reaction to a CISA advisory regarding ICS equipment from General Electric. So today we're going to be talking about uh, this new CISA advisory uh, regarding uh, the GEICS equipment. Can we start off with just some high-level stuff here? Can you give us a little brief overview of uh, of what we're talking about? Sure. So, I mean, there was there was four, I think, four different organizations involved here. There was uh, Idaho National Labs. There was SCADA-X. There was, and, and when I say Idaho National Labs, it's like the Citrix program. And then you have Biometric. And obviously, oh, there's a lot of people that went into, you know, a lot of thinking that went into making this, this collection of vulnerabilities. But actually, what it does is it affects uh, a large number of products that share very similar firmware to each other that accounts for a big portion of the energy industry's uh, relays. But they're not just limited to the energy industry because you can make energy anywhere or you run a turbine or a generator. And so these type of devices, these protective relays, are used all over the place, not just for, you know, for example, in windmills or next to a coal turbine, but they're used even, you know, for heating the water in a, in a mine in a remote area. It's not your, your typical GE product demographic, but that could be a potential use case of it. So there's a bunch of vulnerabilities there that affect uh, what largely is, looks like third-party components, right? There's things with, you know, the, the, the ciphers that are used for, uh, for communication uh, over SSH, for example, um, you also have uh, issues with uh, the web server that's running on the device and how it how it parses traffic. And then there's other functionality such as um, that, that we call first-tier OEM software, right, uh, that can push firmware to the device and there's no integrity checking upon it. And then there's also um, there's some bootloader problems there too. So there's, it's, there's a whole gamut of vulnerabilities in this release. And so what are the opportunities for folks to mitigate the issues here? Well, the good news is, is that GE did the right thing and said, hey, you know, we do provide firmware updates, right? Um, that's a great step by a vendor. Uh, unfortunately, um, instead of just saying like, hey, we're going to analyze the product, you should move to a newer one. The updates don't apply to all of the firmware of all of these devices. So... There's 14 different CPU revisions for this device, which would make sense, right? It's lived a long time. It's over many different products. Um, there's just different hardware inside of each of them. And there's only firmware really available for four of those 14 different CPUs. Now, I'd say there's all of the fixes are unique, right? There's different versions of firmware for all of them, but there is some gaps there. So if I were to say, go update your devices when it's appropriate, that works if you can. Um, but if you can't, right, you want to make sure that you've, you know, you've locked down the devices to... Uh, a set of least least functionality or least uh, least principal uh, features that are available to the device. So, for an example, if you have the option of turning off the web server, do it right. Like if you're not using it, that would make sense. You know, the bootloader vulnerabilities. You know, watch for weird things at startups. Right, prevent them from physical access. The the vulnerability for that one was actually a bit misquoted. Not one I can speak too much more. But the other ones, you know, limit the access to them. Make sure they're on isolated networks. Make sure the system speaking to them are speaking to them in a secure manner and are secure themselves. You know, it's your, it's your, your general uh, boilerplate cybersecurity, uh, you know, remediation strategies. But in particular, because these devices are used in, in critical infrastructure and in a very critical uh, 
in function uh, type situations, um, we really need to be uh, to engineer out the risks by doing all of the things that I just mentioned. And to what degree will the folks who are working with this particular type of equipment be aware that, first of all, they're working with this kind of equipment and, and that potentially they have an issue here? Well, probably one of the first indicators that you'd have this device, I mean, assuming that you knew nothing about your inventory of assets out there in the field, one of the things that they'll probably do is to look through, hey, which OEM software tools that we have, right? So that could be the Enter Vista series. And for each of these products, they have their own installers. But you want to find out what you're using and where it's being used from. So they're probably going to say, okay, we know we got some GE relays out back. Um, hey, let's let's pull up the specs or log into the tech, technician laptop or something and say, see if that OEM software is there. If you see it there, chances are then you know that you have at least one of these devices out there in the field. So that would give you a good indicator of, you know, okay, I have a problem. Let's let's go figure out how many devices I have. The other thing is uh, many of these devices are in their most insecure deployment uh, schema, if you will. There's, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Part of its integrators didn't do, you know, didn't harden them. The customer didn't require it. These options are there, but no one used it because it had some sort of uh, idiosyncrasy where it didn't work under a certain situation. There's plenty there for, for a vendor to get started, even without a firmware update. And then what they want to do is to make sure that those devices are secure within their premises and also within their particular network zones as well. How do you see things playing out as as we go forward in terms of this being an ongoing issue? This will absolutely be an ongoing issue. Uh, Vulnerabilities will continue to be created, right? Well, I mean, not created, uh, discovered is probably a better better term. Mm -hmm. And in in that case, what you need to do is to think about a consequence, you know, engineer out the risk, consequence-based engineering, right? To quote Andy Bachman and I now. You're going to have to think more about that. You're going to have to think that almost all embedded devices are vulnerable. So what do I do to get that risk down to a level that I'm comfortable with? And to do that, you'll have to think about compensating controls right off the bat and, and try to really limit the, that, you know, the connections to these devices. One option might people will say, well, let's not have any Ethernet you know, functionality. Let's go back to the old analog and serial ways. Um, there's a reason why we got away from that. And so I don't see that as a particularly good option. Uh, but one option could be for, for asset owners to start leveraging more of the secure deployment guidelines that are produced by vendors and forcing their integrators, forcing the persons that are installing this gear to actually adhere to them and actually testing uh, whether or not someone actually did the work, right, instead of just saying they did so. I think that there'll be more focus on that, of secure deployments moving forward. But a lot of these devices are legacy devices or legacy deployments. And, and so uh, we're just, we're, you know, we're doing cleanup at the moment. That's Ron Brash from Verve Industrial Protection. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, Interesting article. This is from the folks over at Federal News Network. Uh, This one's written by Jory Heckman. And it's titled National Cyber Director, Bureau of Cyber Statistics Needed to Understand the Threat Landscape. What's going on here, Ben? So this article leads off with a great hook. I did not know about this historical fact. Um, But uh, in the early days of the U.S. Post Office, when Benjamin Franklin was Postmaster General, he gave uh, local postmen at the time a, a task to jot down the local weather conditions, mail them back to headquarters on a postcard so that they could aggregate information. Um, because Benjamin Franklin rightly realized that weather in one area didn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, and you could understand more about, you know, the meteorological conditions in this country by collecting a wide array of data. Uh, to circle that back to something that's relevant to us, what uh, the National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, said at a recent meeting is that we need to engage in a similar sort of effort as it relates to cyber threats. We need to know, in his words, which way the winds are blowing. So his idea is to stand up what would be called a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. This would require an act of Congress. It would be housed within the Department of Homeland Security. And they would be tasked with collecting, analyzing, and publishing data on cybersecurity, cybercrime, and threats. Hmm. You know, one thing that's interesting to me uh, is these are the type of statistics that have been so valuable to us in a pandemic. Um, we've been collecting them in the public health realm. Obviously, we haven't been doing a good enough job collecting that data. Right. But to get a, a, a you know, full understanding of, to, to get a full threat assessment, you know, what, what are the conditions out there? What are the variants of concern that are going to increase infections? What are problem areas of the country where we're seeing surges in hospitalizations? We have, through the CDC, set up a centralized system where we can collect data from states and localities, local hospital systems, to understand the threat landscape. Right. And right now, we don't have that in in the cyber world. Uh, So this is not only an idea that's been pushed by Director Inglis, but it was also originally proposed in the uh, Solarium Commission report, which is interesting because one of the other recommendations of the Solarium uh, Commission report was to uh, create the job that Mr. Inglis himself now holds. Hmm. (laughs) So Congress uh, certainly um, has taken to heart some of those recommendations in uh, the Solarium Commission report, and I think it would be wise of them to take this recommendation as well. You know, I've, I've heard some folks compare this sort of thing to uh, aviation, where, you know, if you have an incident, you're obligated to report that incident, and, and then there will be an investigation. Could we see a similar sort of effort? I mean, could, could something like that be rolled into uh, this organization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what the idea is here, is you're collecting disparate information on individual circumstances and trying to aggregate it so that you get a better uh, picture of the threat landscape. And we see that in, in, you know, law enforcement tools that are used at the local level where you're co- collecting information on the location of crime, high crime, certain characteristics of, of neighborhoods that um, lead to more violent crime. Now, obviously, we can question the accuracy of those tools. But the idea is each piece of disparate information is not collected in a vacuum you have to have some sort of central location where it's stored and analyzed so that you can identify the next threat potentially before it comes to pass. I guess so what I'm getting at, though, is also the, the obligation to report. Because we, we hear, you know, folks are, are reticent to report ransomware uh, incidences, for example, because of the, they don't want to be, uh, they don't want the bad PR that could come from that with their customers. 
in an ideal world, there would be an obligation to report. That might not be as politically tenable. Mm. Um, I still think creating this uh, Bureau of Cyber Statistics would be valuable even if there wasn't an oblig- a legal obligation to report. Right. Because a lot of entities would still voluntarily report. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're less concerned about their own liability uh, or, you know, if they're sure they're not going to be held uh, liable or, you know, they're not going to suffer reputational damage from being the victim of a cyber attack, mm-hmm. they may see value in a broader effort to you know, aggregate information and and try and uh, protect our networks uh, for the future. So I think it can still work, even in the absence of mandatory reporting. And I think the article makes that clear. We're not always going to collect every piece of relevant data. The more data we can aggregate, the better. So, uh, you know, I I think uh, as long as we recognize that this is going to be an imperfect system, I don't think that should stop us from setting up uh, a system that would perform that role. All right. Well, again, the the article is from the Federal News Network. It's titled National Cyber Director, Bureau of Cyber Statistics Needed to Understand Threat Landscape. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It will save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Elliot Peltzman filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.